The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen. I'm Chief Program Officer of Grantmakers for Education, author of the book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode helped me reflect on how mainstream Western definitions of learning and education are really just relics. When we use these terms, and when we design or redesign schools and curricula, we're often using templates that were invented during the scientific revolution in Europe, back in the 1500s. Before this period, most societies around the world viewed the world as a living system designed by goddesses, gods, driven by the spirits of plants and animals. Humans thought of themselves as part of that whole, immersed in it, subject to it, and in awe of it. This is the basis of what you'll hear me call a holistic indigenous worldview. Now, during the scientific revolution, philosophers and scientists found a new way to study and understand the world by putting humans apart from it, by becoming objective observers. They wanted to know how the world was made, to be able to take things apart and rebuild them, to predict what was going to happen and to understand why. And to do that, their left hemispheric ways of engaging the world had to take charge. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we talk about the brain's hemispheric tendencies in episode two. Many thinkers have referred to this new worldview as the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview, after the thinkers who influenced it the most. As Europeans colonized the world, this view was exported out of Europe and displaced the holistic indigenous worldview that was dominant in most other parts of the world. It's now the dominant way in which most of us experience our lives. But as we'll learn, the holistic indigenous view didn't disappear, it just went underground. Driven by left hemispheric thinking, the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview privileged certain concepts over others. Extraction and domination of nature over sustainability, abstraction over embodied knowledge, objective knowledge and measurement over subjective experience and the influence of context, efficiency over process, storytelling, and experience, and eventually one conception of progress over the lives of other human beings. I've come to think of these as modern Western supremacy culture values. The Cartesian-Newtonian worldview brought us the conventional factory model of education, which views learning as linear and structured, and neglects other forms of knowing and intelligence that humans are capable of. It standardizes people and labels and stigmatizes the ones who don't fit. Many students get left behind in this system, and in fact, that's exactly what the system was designed to do. Shape learners according to strict priorities, rank and sort them. Most of us recognize that this model isn't working anymore, but until we really understand why, until we see what we lost when holistic indigenous values were pushed to the side, we won't really understand how to fix education. The Future of Smart podcast 
is presenting an approach to education that's grounded in holistic indigenous views of what it means to be a person, what it means to exist in community, what counts as knowledge, what it means to learn and succeed. This view of education embraces the more expansive understanding of human cognition and capability that Annie Murphy-Paul shared with us in episode two. As today's guest, Josie Green says, it's grounded in deep relationship and a sense of belonging. It honors personal knowledge. It's relevant and responsive to young people and their contexts. And it aims to foster agency and self-determination within the context of being in community. You'll hear us refer to this kind of approach as human-centered liberatory. This reflects the idea that education should be designed around the needs of young human beings and should help each young person grow up into the person they wish to be, rather than molding them to inherited ideas of intelligence or success. Today, we'll hear from two leaders who are working to further Indigenous values and approaches in American education. Their stories are particularly compelling because Indigeneity isn't just an idea to them. It was essential to their experience as students, and it's essential to the lives of the young people they serve today. Josie and Jonathan arrived in conventional schools from families and communities that lived by indigenous knowing. They felt the clash of two systems when they got to school, and they found a way to integrate the wisdom of their origins into the systems they encountered and are now building. You'll hear this term indigenous a lot in this episode and in others, so it's worth pausing here to define it, to set the table of what we're talking about, as Jonathan phrases it. In this podcast, the term means more than simply those people who bore the brunt of colonization in the U.S. and abroad. Here, it refers to growing, living, or occurring naturally in a particular place and relating to the earliest known inhabitants of a place. Throughout this podcast, we'll use the term to refer to ways of experiencing human life that thrived before the arrival of outside religious, political, military, and economic forces through colonization. This was life organized around intuitive, local values, rather than values imposed from the outside. I first encountered the term neo-indigeneity in Chris Emden's book For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood. The term points to commonalities between indigenous groups and other populations that have dealt with being silenced by America's dominant Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. These groups, including some that were eventually accepted as white, recognize a tension between their traditional ways of being and the larger culture they're forced to navigate. These traditional ways of being are often defined by holistic indigenous values and forms of community. Join me as I explore that idea and more in today's episode with my guests Josie Green and Jonathan Santos Silva. I'm so happy to have you here. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm wondering if I can start with you, Josie. Um, I'd love you each to just introduce yourself for our listeners and then um, just tell us a little bit about how you got here as a person, right? I think it's so important that we start with our personal stories because they shape everything else about us. Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for making this space so that we could all come together. Um, And I think it's such a good question of how we came to be in this moment in time. But but first, I'm Josie Green. I'm currently the Wawanglake of Teach for America, South Dakota. 
And wa'awanglake is the Lakota word for guardian or caregiver of something. It's the way in which we watch over our younger siblings or our loved ones. Um, and that felt like a necessary shift when thinking about the work that we do. It, it actually requires care and guardianship and, and safe safeguarding of sorts. Um, and I think that that actually extends my role in, in this education world and, and goes into a different type of education world, which, which is me as a Lakota child, a Lakota woman, a Lakota mother. Um, and I'm from South Dakota. I'm from the Pine Ridge Reservation. I'm Oglala Lakota. And I think my education journey started very much in my family and in the ways that I was raised. Um, and, and I think that that made it a sharp shift when entering public education and recognizing that something here isn't aligned to the world that I know. Um, and so after graduating high school and then graduating from college, I joined Teach for America to become an educator. And I taught in the Rosebud Reservation, second and third grades. And I think that journey of learning and unlearning continued and, and have made my way here to now being Wawanglake of Teach for America, South Dakota. Mm, great. And just, um, you have kids of your own? How old are they? And um, are they in I school? Do. Yeah, great question. I've got two little ones, two little boys, Eden Tanagila um, and Ellis Chetan. And Eden is, gosh, 14 months old now. And Ellis is almost six. Um, so he's kindergarten age, but we are home educating. Um, and his poor little fish just died this morning. And so we are, that is the learning experience that we're on. We're like, what, what is happening? What is happening in the world? of being five, um, but they are our guiding lights and, and recalibrating little peoples to what we're doing. Mm, great to have you here. Jonathan, great to be with you today. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, my name is Jonathan Santos Silva, and I am the founder of the Liber Institute, uh, an organization that works to embolden and equip indigenous young people, families, and educators to transform their schools. And I get there a very circuitous route. Um, I am the child of, I'm the first generation American-born child of uh, Cape Verdean immigrants. You know, we were talking about that before we came on air. We just lost my uncle, you know, and just getting back together and doing all the things that we do. I was like just really grounded and reminded of what I come from, you know, family and faith and all of these things that are so important to us. Um, uh, and we were raised, you know, with a, uh, a strong sense of um, a gratitude for opportunity. You know, my, my, my grandfather moved his family here to escape war. And so the opportunities to work, the opportunities to get education were really very, um, you know, they were paramount in our house, you know. And so even when, um, you know, when doing work that your parents can't help you with, you're like, mom, how do I do this? I don't know, but you better figure it out. You know, that's the mindset. You're going to get this work done because, you know, a lot of people sacrifice for you to be here. Um, and so that that's a part of who I am. Um, uh, similar to Josie, uh, went off to uh, college. For me, it was a foregone conclusion. I don't think I knew what college really was. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what made a good one. I just knew I was going to one. You know, that was like kind of like, it was like messaged. So I went off to college. Um and, you know, I think got caught away in a current, you know, trying to be successful without really understanding what success meant for me, but wanting to be able to take care of family the way that family had taken care of me. And then 
kind of non-traditionally, you know, five years out of undergrad, learned about Teach for America and kind of like in that place of being like, well, is this what I'm supposed to do forever? I'm not happy doing this. Is this what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, working in business? I joined Teach for America and was placed in South Dakota on the Pine Ridge Reservation, teaching high school math and um, and then uh, ACT prep. So at the high school level. Uh, so that was my job. Um, but what I ended up doing was, was so much more than that. I ended up becoming, um, you know, this is the cool thing about teaching on the res in a small school. And this is probably true anywhere in a small rural school. On any given day, you know what I mean? And, you know, things can change. So in the middle of a blizzard, I became the play-by-play announcer for Mustang Athletics and did that for a year and a half, boys basketball, girls basketball, and then football. Um, and also was a, um, a chaperone for the oral interp which is the, our, our young people who are into like, it's kind of like public speaking and drama. And so uh, they, they, you know, perform a one act play or a monologue or a duet. And because of where they're located uh, in the southwestern corner of South Dakota, you're traveling all over to get to your meets to compete. And so I got to see South Dakota spending weekends on buses with my students. And so between traveling with them for oral interrupt and traveling with them, for basketball and football, um, that's really where I became, I think, part of the community and getting to know who my kids were and who their families were and what's important to them. And so that was really, you know, that I did end up getting a, um, a more uh, a degree after, but my real master's degree came from, you know, teaching on the res. So um, that and that's how I ended up here. You know, there's probably not another way that a kid from a small city in Brock, you know, Brockton, Massachusetts, ends up in South Dakota on the res teaching or doing anything but for teach for america um and then that is what you know ignited the passion to not only just be really grateful for what i was able to do and experience while i was there but to that pay it forward and start the library institute and so the long story short is that we we focus on um working with leaders identifying folks who already are passionate leaders in their communities but whether it's networks or or connections or resources identifying what they need to be, have access to and providing support and training so that they can transform their schools. Um, you know, we'll get into this later, but uh, no schools in America really were ed- designed for young people uh, from, from whether, you know, from indigenous communities, from black communities, not even for girls really. Um, so to be putting, to help people identify their power and ability to reimagine schools for the first time, that re, that reflect them and their values and are made for them is somewhat of a revolutionary act, and so that's what we do. That's what we that's what we try to be about, anyway. So I'm also first generation American. My parents and my family are Indian by origin. I was born in New Jersey after my parents immigrated. I grew up in Tanzania with family, and then I came back. And I've spent a lot of time living in and going to school in other cultures. So there are elements of that story across all of us in terms of what it is to be raised by parents and inside of families that have one culture, to be navigating a dominant culture, and specifically America's dominant culture, and then to have access in really different ways to other Context. I think it gives us a really unique and interesting perspective on the kind of water that we live inside of because we're constantly navigating multiple spaces and multiple worldviews. So I'm curious, what have you both noticed about the kinds of tensions you navigated growing up? Like what you had to do when you went into schools or when you went out into the broader community versus who you got to be when you were at home and inside of your families? 
as I, I alluded to, you know, my 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 father's family immigrated here from Cape Verde Islands off of the west coast of Africa, like west of Senegal, if you look at a map. Um, and they are a people wholly born out of slavery. There was nobody living there. They were forced out of the mainland. Uh, that was a way station to the Americas to com- complete the Middle Passage or whatever. So it's an, it's like a real hodgepodge of culture. Um, and so the things that, um, you know, I see elements of us in so many places, right? Because I'm, and I'm realizing as I get older, oh, this is from there. This is from there. You know, this, you know, like I, you know, I grew up, Cape Verdeans are Portuguese and, 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 and West African. That's what I was taught. Didn't, my father's doing the DNA and we're like, where did this Italian come from? We don't have any Portuguese. What is, you know, what is going on? We have uh, Jewish and we have all this stuff, you know, that, that we're learning. And so, but when you're six, seven, eight, walking to school, you don't know any of that because it is what it is. It's just normal. It's home. It's the smell of food. It's the sound of music. It's the sound of voices and singing. Uh, it's the laughter. It's the loud voices. It's all the things that are in, are natural. And so, at first, when I when you when you frame the question, I'm like, yeah, it was it was just normal. We went to school, and then I realized though that there was this like, kind of like uh, threshold crossing that when you got to school, then you just I don't know. I don't know how I um, learned it, but it was like you you pick up on a subtle messages that that's not how things happen here you know you don't just get to talk out of like it is not a thing in my family to just like start you know talk over somebody and it's not that you're disrespecting them or whatever they're saying it's so exciting it you connect to it and just oh yeah you know just start jumping in and like nobody takes offense to it that doesn't work at school not not in a traditional setting anyway not a traditional public school doesn't work raise your hand anyway you know i remember like you know I do remember at kindergarten, like sitting around, ba- almost, you know, wetting my pants because I, you know, you know, you don't wait and ask to go to bed. You just go and like this whole, you know, there were so many things they hadn't get used to, you know? Um, and so I do think that like, it's not, I hadn't thought about it until you asked the question, but there, are, that was the, it was such a normal thing for me. And I, we grew up in a, a multi, um, Ethnic, you know, so Cape Verdeans, Haitians, uh, Portuguese kids, Irish kids, kids from everywhere. So my guess is that many of my friends were doing that as Hmong kids, you know, from uh, China. So people are probably there. We're all doing it at the same time, but slightly differently. And so, uh, in some ways, that was normal. We were all, but we were all doing it our own way from different foundations, you know, um, and so. I think that, and if anything, that's the that's the uh, training ground for who I would become as an adult, right? Like as a non-native man uh, doing work in native communities, I am also walking across a, a threshold, right? And I'm I had to learn a new way of uh, of engaging. It was much more comfortable and much more familiar. There were many more similarities, I would say, than in K twelve, but it was an, a transition nonetheless. And so I find that like that which was probably t- hard, but I guess because we're young and our m- minds are so malleable and, you know, we're just making meaning. We're, oh, okay, we just don't do that here. Okay, oh, that's what we do here. You're doing that without thinking about it. But as an adult now, I, I can appreciate the way that I make some of these um, transitions and moves from like where if I'm hanging out with just Josie 
and Sage and Sarah and Rosemary, my board at Lyra Institute, there's a way I show up that is slightly different than earlier today when I was on with a, with a philanthropist, you know, and I was like, okay, trying to fill him out, right? I'm going back to school. We don't do this. We don't do that. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I really answered the question, but it's just a thought provoking question, you know? Yeah, no, I, Jonathan, I'm, I'm sitting with both the imagery of walking over a threshold and like taking the trans, the journey from being in like a safe haven of normalcy. Um, and then like walking to school and slowly shedding parts of who you are, who we are, um, and then crossing into this other world. And, and I think for me, that just resonates so much because I think of the the environment at home being that of trust. And, and I forgot to mention that I'm also biracial. My, my father was a first generation Italian immigrant. Um, and so I come from this household of deeply rooted origin stories of we come from this land. And on my father's side, he journeyed to this land. Um, and I think our household honored both of those stories, both of those journeys and ways of being. And what it resulted in was just like the utmost trust in who every individual was in our household. Like I, I always remember, because I hear it almost on the daily, my, my mother and my father reminding us that we know who you, like you know who you are um, in the face of any adversity or some kind of small scuffle. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here or I'm complaining about this thing that happened. I was always met with, you know who you are. It, it is not the responsibility of other people to be telling you who you are, but that is what they're going to do because they're going to try to shape you. Um, but at, at your core, there's a knowing that you have and, and no one can take that from you. Um, and so I think we carried that to school. And at the same time, the threats were so pervasive that, that there was such a lack of trust in our own knowing because it is a, just a different environment. It's a, you're actually not a full hu human being. You are not whole. You may not actually belong in this space, um, but you will be made to belong. And, and at the root of that is like a distrust in, in who you are as a person. And I think that's like been the biggest transition for me when I think about that that doesn't just exist in schools. It exists so, in so many other places. But I think it's just the biggest difference all around is this lack of trust in, in humans, just knowing and already being full. That resonates with me, too. And it makes me think of why we home educate. I didn't mention that we have four kids. I have an awesome wife who is a special educator by trade. And then we have uh, eight, a six, a four, and a two-year-old. And we home educate. And it's not because I believe I can keep them safe from everything out there or protect them from everything, you know, um, but that I believe that I can, um, I trust my and my wife's ability to guide and help our children make meaning more than I do their ability to like withstand six or seven or eight hours of this and then come home. I just know that there were things that happened to me at school um, that I never told my parents about. And not because I was afraid to tell my parents. It just like, I think, uh, like as I look back, I internalized that home was one place and school was another. And there were certain things that were important to go back and other things you just deal with it. And so like I tell my mom now, she's like, what? I would have been at that school. And I'm like, yeah, I, maybe little me knew that. 
and I didn't know if that was okay. And so I didn't tell anyone. I didn't say anything. And so I didn't want my, I don't want my kids to have that. And so that's a big part of it. You know, they don't, they can never say they didn't have a black male teacher because they have their dad. We can't say they never had an Asian woman teacher because they have their mom. You know, they see themselves at school or in learning. We won't call it school, but, you know, they were playing Pokemon today with all their friends from pod, from the pod. So, you know what I mean? So it's very not school, but it, it, it's um, our way of introducing them to the world at a pace that we think that, you know, we're okay with and we can support them through and we can help them make meaning when they ask questions. I'm listening to you both and and feeling a little bit of envy in the sense of, you know, there's a reason I think Asians are called the model minority. Like there's a way in which Asian communities, I will say Indian community has straddled this kind of space in a different way. And I don't know that I would have said that my parents told me growing up that I knew who I was and I should be rooted in that. I feel like that was a journey I had to take as an adult um, in terms of the expectations, the stories. And yet there's also a lot in what each of you said that resonates in terms of, you know, our home was open. There was never a question of, was there enough food at the table? You know, could you bring this person in? Like this was your uncle, this was your auntie who came in, whether they were related to you or not. And they all came to dinner and you had 15 people, everyone talking over everybody else, right? The This idea of we are connected to each other across time, across space, um, your ancestors, your lineage. So there's, it, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm sort of listening and going, yes, there's so much of that that resonates. And I feel like I had to come to that. Um, I, this term indigenous, right, is coming up a lot now. I feel like America in this moment of racial reckoning, there is, um, and in the funding community, there's a lot of talk about indigenous values and going back to indigenous knowledge systems and ways of knowing. I want to ask each of you, and Josie, I'll ask you first, and then Jonathan, I'll ask you, because I know you and I have talked about neo-indigeneity, this this concept of neo-indigeneity, but what do you associate with that? When you think indigenous worldview, indigenous way of being, what does that mean for each of you? Mm, yes. I The first thing that comes to mind is just a, a definition that we often tell kids of what indigenous means here, because we work with indigenous students of Lakota, Dakota, Nakota students, um, youth. And, and that is that indigenous means that you can track your origin stories to the land that you are currently on. Like you, you are in relationship with it, like thinking about the relationships that we're always in with other beings, with each other, with our histories. Like that includes the land that you are on right now. Um, and that also then includes like a lot of cultural connotations. It includes something older. It's the resilience that continues from histories before is what I think of when I think of indigenous ways of being. I think there's, there's again, so many threats to the ways that we are and how we be. Um, but there is this thread that has just continued through time um, and has traveled through through, through stories and through families and generations and what that thing is, I think that's also indigenous and maybe it goes into like the neo-indigeneity um, as well. But that that's what first comes to mind. And I'm going to just pause. When I use indigenous, <clears throat> the term indigenous in our work, first of all, I capitalize it and my old boss made sure we capitalized it. <laughs> Carol Bobroff at the... Uh, Native American Community Academy and, 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 and the Inspired Schools Network. 
Um, uh, but I'm referring to, uh, generally I'm referring to folks who we would otherwise uh, refer to as like Alaskan native, Hawaiian or native American, um, or Indian, you know, some older folks who I strongly identify with that term and probably most appropriately the individual tribes or nations that people are part of, whether those, uh, nations are federally recognized or not, um, that's what I'm thinking of uh, most of the time, um, and you know, and and the, and, the, and the cultures and languages that they that they bring with them. Yep, and in the U.S., that that makes sense. So I'm curious how you both think about what the term indigenous refers to when it's used to describe particular communities and cultures. Do you feel it's legitimate for us to be speaking today about? indigenous worldviews and indigenous ways of being as we try to bring values of community, relationship, and wholeness back into how we think about our education system. And I'd invite you to reflect, too, on this term neo-indigeneity that Chris Emden used in an essay where he was trying to describe the sense of familiarity he felt as a Black man in America with what he observed about his indigenous students' lives and experiences in school. I mean, I think it's interesting because, I mean, would an Aboriginal Australian or Maori person use the same term for themselves? As, you know, so right. So we, on one hand, it's like, is indigenous? Can we just, uh, I, like I said, I use it to speak about people, folks who are indigenous here because I'm in the United States and I'm talking about like, quote, you know, whatever, uh, American children or whatever, right? And some people might not like me calling native kids American because they're members of their their nation but for for lack of a better term i'm talking about that because of the geography and where i'm at but in some sense indigenous is much bigger than that right like i didn't include uh first nations canadian folks but are they not indigenous are not i said like i said maori and aboriginal people so i think it's a good term i just think you have to be you know careful to, not you i mean us as you as uh speakers or storytellers, whoever's, we just be careful to let, you know, set the table of where we're talking about, because, you know what I mean? And, and then I think that, because it, it, it's a helpful term, it differentiates, you know, my students that I, that I taught from me as an immigrant, right? So it is important, right? Not to other, but more just to contextualize and add, and, 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 and add, you know, depth to our stories. Uh, in and of itself, it doesn't say much, but in totality with other parts of who you're a woman, Part of the LGBT community, child, mother, you know, what all these, then it becomes meaningful, you know, uh, because they, again, and then I would say we go to Africa. Are they not? Uh, are they not indigenous? You know, there are a lot of non-indigenous people that are there to occupy land. So how do you differentiate, right? So I think it is a powerful term, and I think it has value, but like with any other terminology, we just have to be careful to set the table or the container that we're in so that people know what I mean, that I'm not trying to be exclusionary or, or, or anything. It's just in this context, in the United States, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I appreciate the, the set the table because I think that's maybe was some of the, the words I was looking for in, in like really clearly identifying if there's a who who we're talking about and there's that additional layer of like an indigenous worldview um, Maybe there's like worries about like blanket statement or generalizations about what exactly indigenous means. Um, 
for way too many people or too broad, too broad of a scope. And I think it's like a, it's a helpful, it's a helpful word to better understand something that might feel like more original or like pre-colonial. When they, and I'm going to this worldview question that you, you, you mentioned Josie. So when people talk about an indigenous worldview, maybe as compared to a more modern Western view of the world, like what is it that people are trying to point to with that terminology of indigenous worldview, either ways of being or understanding ourselves or understanding what it is to know or our relationships you said with the land or with other people, like I'm just curious, like what comes to mind for both of you that people are trying to point at, even if sometimes inelegantly? When I'm thinking about returning to or reclaiming or whatever, an indigenous worldview, it is, to me, it's about getting back to something, right? It's this idea uh, uh, of uh, that uh, non, you know, whatever, like the myth of whiteness, first of all, let's just dispel that, right? Because what is white culture? What is the, where's the essence of white culture? You know, is, that, is it somewhere in the mountains of Caucasus that this is where all the white people came with their white music and white relationship? You know, it's not real. It's not real, you know? Um, so what we actually are talking about, I, I think, or I am talking, let me speak for myself. What I am talking about is like really moving away from what is a Western dominant or a white dominant, you know, this Eurocentric worldview that in many ways um, is not very uh, cultural, for lack of a better term. It's not very, uh, there's not a real unifying, you know what I mean? Like when I, and I know, this is very going to be really rambling, but I apologize in advance. When I got to the res, what struck me differently probably than the other folks in my cohort, I was like, I think the only, I was one of two black men actually, was that, I was in a completely new place. I had never been, I had never seen land like this, like this openness and all, there's all these ways that my brain was firing. Like, this is different. This is, you're learning again. But then come into relationship with people and the way they talked about and uh, time and relationships and food and um, uh, hospitality, these things were very familiar. They were different words. There was a different type of food, but the relationship to food and, and and taking care of people was very familiar, right? Even just like I shed the negative association with time, like CP time, but I was talking from like growing up and oh, you know, people will be late. CP time, you know how that is. But that was a, the, the, the Western dominant uh, narrative on how we viewed time. It wasn't until I got to the reservation and I went to my first board school board meeting and like none of the board was there on time, on time, quote unquote, you know, in linear time, that someone had to school me to the game of like, no, they are on time. They'll be here when they're supposed to be here. They're probably with relatives right now. Something's come up and, it, and I didn't understand relatives at that point. So I'm thinking like actual blood relatives, like they're with their family, but it was like, they're probably with a relative. And when they're done there, they'll be here and they'll give us the same attention when they get here as they're giving them now. <clears throat> that was an asset-based perspective on the relativity of time or the circular nature of time, right? It's not 705 that's important. It's being with Olka and Josie that's important. That's time. But when you go back, like, so then zoom back out to white, quote unquote, white, what, any of it. We don't have, in this Euro dominant, we don't have the same connection to family. We put our families in, 
senior homes. We get rid of them. We we send our kids to school. You know, we we put them in program. We we program them out. We're not with them because the culture, the dominant culture, tells us that those are the things that are important. You're not working enough. You're not working hard enough. How many programs are your kids in? They're not active enough, right? So all these things that take us away from those things that I think when I think of indigenous culture, the returning, it's the things that I find that that not only were they similar, you know, and, and affirming uh, and familiar when I went to the, and obviously there were also very many differences, right? Nuances, but it was so familiar when I got to the res. Well, that was also very familiar when I grew up with Haitian kids. It was also very familiar, <clears throat> just, you know, to like Josie's dad, right? Like my, my Italian and Portuguese friends who were also first gen was familiar. So it's not, I, I grew up thinking, oh, black people, we're different. We do this. Th-. And as I get older and more sophisticated in my understanding, I'm like, this isn't just a black thing. I have Indian friends and Nigerian friends from, you know, these are things that, again, there were more similarities and, and the nuances and the way it manifests are going to be unique. And that's why I love to be around my friends of different backgrounds because I get exposed and I learn new words. I learn new foods. I learn new dances and music and stuff. But what that there are ties, you know, that certain things are important and that they are valued are, I'm not going to say universal, but they are thematic. And I think that when you, when I hear you say, you know, talk about or reference an indigenous worldview, that's what I'm thinking of. Those things that whether they're native to North America or like, you know, when I watch Frozen 2, they're no, native to Europe or like my father and they're native to Africa, that there are just certain things, right, that are uh, the building blocks of all of those cultures. I A quote just came to me as you were talking, Jonathan, just in this very moment that I'm thinking so much now about just how hard it is to put a lot of this into language and and how much of it is like a feeling and and so i'm thinking now of audrey lord's quotes um like she alludes to like our white fathers say i think therefore i am whereas our black mothers whisper to us in our dreams i feel therefore i can be free and and i feel like there's just a different notion of starting in a place of being like indigenous worldview to me when I think about like my upbringing and who I am and just how I am, it starts at a, a body level of just being here and feeling. And then it's almost, it almost like correlates to me with like that journey to school and back. Like I start as a full human being and then I might transition at different points to like this thinking, this like overthinking, over identifying um, that I think transitions into that other world view at different times that I think school really captures that other world view. And then I'm going to come home and be in my own culture, in my own context. And in an ideal world, like I can apply and make those two things come together. That's not necessarily the case um, because it's so pervasive. This other, this other world view is also like robbing. Like I think of the the, the examples of time and and how we often are on the go 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 pacing is just so fast and and we not we don't often take a moment to breathe and and I think there's a fear in breathing because it invites us to be present in the moment which would mean to feel and we we don't feel in our societies these days because it would open up too much um and and it's almost dangerous at this point 
in unless you have like the protection of a people or a space to actually feel the, those feelings of liberation. I feel like I'm rambling at this point, but I think there is something about like being embodied fully, but but always starting there is what I think of when I think of indigenous indigenous worldviews is just being um, and, and circling back to my mom's and my mother and father's advice of like, you know who you are, that that means that you just are, you are being. Um, and over-identifying and trying to compartmentalize is such a disassociated notion if we stay there too long. So let's dive a bit more deeply into education. How do you think our ideas about the purpose of education, who kids are, what success means, differ when we approach them through an indigenous understanding of the world versus what we see in our conventional education systems? Well, the w- one thing I'll say out of the bat, like regardless of the definition, I think one of the harmful ideas about those three, learning, school, education, and the United States anyway, maybe in other parts of the world too, I'm very, I'm very limited in my perspective, is that we use them as synonyms sometimes. And they're not always the same thing. It's not, you know, educate, like re- education to me is a positive term. You know, it, it has, to me, it has a, it, you know, if, if, there, if, if words have charges, then the, it's a positive emotional charge. I feel good education. And that is whether it's having this conversation with you two and walking away smarter, and better because of it. That's to me education. Education, or reading something. Education. I do um, Spanish on Duolingo, and I'm actually better at Spanish now than I ever was in school. That's a, a whole nother thing. But that's education, right? It's this. It's the growth. It's the. To me, it's like if 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 I am if if my creator, he's, if he's a creator and I'm a piece of clay, it's this constant refinement and and one day I will be done and then I'll be done. I'll be done, done. But like in the meantime, it's a smoothing and refinement and it's getting better every time. That's education. It's getting better is, you know, getting smarter, learning the language, learning math, learning to read, learning to write, telling a story. Education is not always just passive reception. It's what are you creating? Right. That's what, what it's a big part of why we do. We, I, I, I don't say we homeschool anymore. I'm intentional to say we home educate because number one, we're not trying to do school. We don't have periods. We're not making them do it at a certain time. But also, I, I hope someone goes, what does that mean? Why do you say home education? You know, now we have a conversation. A lot of times when we use words and we all assume we know, then we are out, we're worse for it because we don't do the table setting. Uh, so that's the first part. It's just, and I'll stop because uh, I, I don't necessarily have an, edu- an a, a, excuse me, a definition yet, but it's just that I think we do a lot of harm. And I don't, I know you weren't saying this, but I think in the broader conversation, we do harm because we use those words interchangeably and all those positive charges that I just associate with education, I don't always associate with school. I don't, you know, people say school is a, you know, education is a tool. School is a tool, whatever. Yeah. And sometimes you, if you, you, if you wield a tool, it can be a weapon. And that's, let's not forget that history of how schooling has been used against certain people in this country. Uh, and, And not just historically, right? Because, there are people alive today who graduated or came out of boarding schools. There are people alive today who were in segregated schools in the South. These are not ancient history. And there are people alive today and that are in schools today who are still being excluded, pushed out, and punished punitively. So 
that's not the definition. I'm just, you know, just throwing it out there. We had to separate them so we can grapple with them. I appreciate that, Jonathan. Um, I think my mind was going similarly and it wasn't able to parse out like, oh yeah, they, they are so different. And and I'm curious like what the role of a learner is in both of those, like in both school and in like this broader education. Um that I think like very much maybe possibly even in both that the role of a learner is to be taught, um, assuming that they don't know or aren't already a full knowledgeable human and, and that there, there sh- could be, should be maybe arguably in my own opinion, a shift to center learning not necessarily centering teaching and moving then to centering kids or the student, but to center like this other thing that exists in all of us that we were born with, which is this act and natural ability to learn. And what happens when we actually center that and and grapple with what it would take for adults? Because I do think education in school is very adult-centric. It focuses so much on the role of what a teacher can and can't do or should be doing, but instead thinking about what we all already have in common, which is our ability to learn. And especially when we're younger, that ability to learn is so much more fruitful, natural. Um, And as time goes on, that becomes less so. It becomes more narrow uh, and, and less focused on individuals and community or oyates purposes and and more so on a narrative that yeah we're we're supposed to be doing and being and feeling a certain thing towards some kind of society's notions of what things are supposed to look like hmm. so i'm curious how that plays out in both of your work so how are you trying to make this new way of doing and being education alive in the work that you're doing. Um, and, and we've done a lot of conversations with our community and elders and, and kids. And what surfaced was a lot of what we're talking about right now, that there are three things that come to the surface. Learning that is relevant, that is responsive to individuals' lived lives and acknowledges their self-knowledge. And then there's wholeness and belonging, like these healthy relationships that are supportive and are adaptive to the needs of individuals and their communities. And then the last is self-determination, which is defined by the community as actually applying your learning to your lived life as an individual and, again, as a community. Um, And those those three things aren't focused on one particular group of people. That is across the board, the three things that we're focusing on when we're developing teachers, when when they're working with kids, and when we're working with families, that those are the three things that it just looks a little different in the ways that we engage folks. And, and so when I think about working with our teachers, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. There's a lot of peeling back layers and walking back to ourselves and in surfacing or unearthing our dignity and in the ways in which my mother said, you know who you are. There's a lot of that with our teachers is you actually do know who you are. Let's let's spend time thinking about who that person is, what is underneath all of these layers. 
let's stop removing all the layers to to come to this place because our kids need us to to hold them and lift them up as they are. They don't need to be told to be anything else other than who they are. And we have like a commitment to making sure that they are strong and can live in the present because their futures are absolutely not promised. And so we need to be doing something radically different, which is something that has always been done in the past, pre-colonial, which was honoring the beings of our kids. And so we're choosing to do that through our teachers and, and helping them subordinate teaching to learning and helping them see the light that is already in front of them and within themselves. And it's hard. Um, even our own team is having to reevaluate the ways in which we operate from a like adult supremacy um, in ways that we need to unlearn and, and think about just who we are. How do we, how, the best, the best or the shortest path and the most sustainable path to transforming the schools that our kids uh, are served by is to ensure that the leaders of those schools are from that community. They're based there. They share values with the young people and their families. They, um, they understand and see those young people differently. And that doesn't mean that there's no place for anybody else. But I just think that if, you know, we import the best principal and he or she runs that school for a while and then leaves, where are we then? So the ideal is that more and more of the leaders are from the community. They're their kids, you know, a few years from now. Um, and so that is a, pro so a part of that is a process of supporting educators to learn, unlearn and learn, you know, like what did I go through or what did my mom go through, my grandma go through that they taught to me implicitly or explicitly, right, that I need to like kind of process not everything that that they learned was bad. You know what I mean? Some of, you know, some of like, some of the process of going through difficulty helps us to get stronger. So some of the things that, that may have been imparted may be valuable from your, your ancestors, right? Um, even though they went through hard times, but unpacking it and making sure, like take it out, unfold it. Do I want to take this with me? Yes, I do. And I put it back. Um, and so that's that part. We do that in we, what we call sacred affinity spaces and stuff. Uh, which comes from um, Farima Porkorshid and her research out of some work in the Bay Area um, about um, creating sacred affinity spaces for critical educators, educators of color. Um, and so we've taken that and tried to apply it to Native educators as well. Like, how do we create spaces for Native educators to, you know, do some reflection and thought about who am I and who am I becoming? Who do I want to be as an educator? Knowing that I'm not native. And so how do I, we help to create the container and then step out of it and then like trust that they're going to, you know, be able to leverage it, the space, you know, in the ways that are meaningful. Also it's supporting teachers and educators in the moment, right. In, in, in a school coaching, observing, uh, whether that's in person or um, virtually using the technology that we have now, um, and that's really important to me because although I know how important relationships are, and that was a really hard piece for me at the beginning of like, how do we serve in places that, um, if we don't have enough people or if we can't get there, the flip side of that is, well, there are folks all over this country. And so I, we can't just wait until I have, you know, a million people in a million little communities, right? Like, and I use this as an example, but there is a community at, at the, the, near the, uh, base of the, Grand Canyon, 
So they have to wait until I can find someone to move down there? No, I, I think with technology, ideally the Liber Institute could serve that community there if they, if they want to partner, right? If, if they want to. It's not a force thing, but it's if they want to. And so it's thinking about how do we use technology in meaningful ways to get into schools, to get into classrooms that we might not be able to? Because even on the res, right, even in Pine Ridge, uh, Pine Ridge is bigger than, I live in Rhode Island now, it's bigger than Rhode Island and Delaware together. So you know what I mean? So just to get to um, from one side to the other, it's a three-hour or whatever drive. So does that mean you got to drive three hours to see the classroom? spend all day in the school and then three hours home. So how long did you spend in the class? An hour, right? So it's getting creative about technology so we can support teachers. And again, to what Josie said, and the same idea of uh, uh, like uh, the word wakanisha, am I saying it right? Wawangwake. No, no, I'm talking about for the children. I'm sorry. Wakanisha, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For our, our, the children are sacred. Wakan, mm. it's built into the word. You know, Lakota, uh, Dakota, Wakan is sacred, right? And so it's in the word for children that they are sacred. So this idea that they're not empty, they're not, you know, blank, they come with stuff. And so, yes, there are things we want them to pick up, but we're also drawing out of them, right? It's two ways. We're growing, we're growing with them as well. What's the same thing applies for our teachers? And that's where I, so maybe it felt like I jumped from virtual, but that's what I'm talking about. So not everything that we want to do with teachers or with educators is about giving them stuff because they're just bad teachers. And if we can just fill them up with good stuff, they'll be better. No, they're already dope. They're already here for the right reasons. So how do we give them some things that they might need and don't have because maybe that was missing, but also draw out of them, which which is inherent, that which is inherent, right? Because, I, you know, I know for when I coach anyone, my favorite question to ask is, Oh, you know, some version of, well, what would you do if, if you didn't think it would fail, or if you knew it would work, or if you wouldn't get in trouble? Because more often than not, people do have a guess. They do have a hypothesis. They do have a dream. They really wish their classroom was A, B, and C, but because they think that if they do that, they get in trouble, they just do the basic traditional classroom. Everybody's in a row. It's It's interesting. I'm hearing some common themes here, right? There's a, this this idea of you are, you are divine, you have it inside of you, and that is enough, and sort of drawing it forth, as opposed to here are all the things you don't know, can't do, let's give you the tools or fill you up with something. There's, um, you know, this idea of learning things that are relevant to the place that you are in, to the way in which you want to be in that space, and for learning to be that. It's the kind of doing for adults what you then want them, to, not, not even doing, but helping to adults be who you want them to be for their children and who they want their children to be, right? And so many of these things are so different from the kind of modern factory industrial model that people talk about in terms of kids as being blank and you sort of pour information into them. And it's not an unfolding, it's sort of molding them to be the people that you want them to be. So it's, you know, you're, I'm, I'm hearing all these threads and themes um, that, you know, almost by what you are describing, when we think about our dominant education system, it is so not that. Um, and that it's an unfolding and it takes time and it's not about rushing through it or being efficient. So I, I want to end because we're, you know, we're coming to time, but what are some of the things that make the work that you are trying to do 
this new way of doing education that I think you have both been describing to us, what makes it hard for that to come to life? Um, Because this is a moment, I think, for education, for funders, for policymakers, where from the disruptions of COVID, we have an opportunity to build something new. And so what should be some of the things we leave behind coming out of COVID to make space for something new? I think, and this includes myself, we all have to do, take the inventory and stock of all of the ways that we benefit from and fight silently to preserve a system that most of us would argue verbally don't, doesn't work, right? Not intentionally, right? I like to think that, you know, the name, the Liber Institute, right, comes from liberation, the free ones, right? And the elephant that in our logo plays off this story that I was once told about domesticated elephants, right? How you catch an elephant young and separate her from her. You probably have to kill the mother, actually, because the mother will come for her, come for her to rescue her, her child. And then you chain the elephant and the elephant will fight and fight and fight. And that chain uh, will do damage, right? And harm and, and scarring on the ankle. And so the elephant learns that she's not free. And then you can begin to domesticate and train her to carry things and move people. But as an adult, you can use rope. And when the elephant feels the tug, it stops because it's already been programmed. Oh, I'm not free. And I've since learned that there are certain times when elephants will break free because there are like there are there's cultural th- practices and rituals they'll be called back for. But then they can be herded back. They can be found and brought back because the, the conditioning is so strong. And that's where Libra comes from. It's this idea that the biggest thing that holds us back isn't anything physical anymore. Although there are very real issues with poverty and sexism and racism and things that are real. But the m- biggest enemy that we have the biggest enemies, the biggest obstacles are mental. And so like the first thing is that we've got to let go of those things, those things, the, the things that we haven't interrogated in ourselves and examined, like why, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, why do my kids have to go to a school? Like, or why does this have to happen? Why does school go like that or whatever? Or why do they have to learn this subject? You know, why do they have to read Moby Dick? Why do they have to read Shakespeare? I never finished one thing of Shakespeare, maybe a sonnet. But like never a whole play, <laughs> never. never my, my if Miss Casey is listening, I love you. But it's true, you knew it. She knew it. She knew it. I never admitted it, but she knew it. I didn't read none of that stuff. I didn't like it, and I'm not saying like oh because I was so woke and black. Like it wasn't. He was an old white guy, and I I just didn't. You know, Romeo and Juliet. I didn't get that. I, I was like, I ain't killing myself for her. No, ain't going down. <laughs> you know, it's not happening. But that was just me. That just was me. And so why do kids have to read that? Because you did? I mean, it's almost like some, some of what we do in school, I, I hate to say it this way, but it's almost like like sadistic. Like, well, I had to go through it. Hey, you're going to go through it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, like, like sometimes, in, you know, in the black community, I remember when I, before I had kids and people like, you know, talking about child rearing. And I was like, when I have kids, yeah, they're going to get spanked. We got spanked. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we got spanked. And then I had my own kids and I'm like, Why? Why would I do that? My parents did what they did because it's what they knew. And they did it better than their parents because they knew more. So I need to do it better. It's not a, a, a referendum on my parents or my grandparents not being good, but we have more knowledge. 
We know more about how kids develop. We know more about who they are. And I think in many ways, like to the earlier part of the conversation, we're returning to knowledge that we probably had before, right? But we're returning to it. So because we know more and know better, we do better. And I think that's that's the most important thing with school. What pisses me off about this the, the broader conversation about school is that we all know that for two years, I had a friend, Anishay, I have a friend, Anishay Wright, who said COVID did what education reform couldn't. We've been talking and nibbling around the edges for like 30 years about, oh, I need to do better, close gaps, da, 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 da. COVID came in, shut schools down, stopped testing, stopped teacher evaluation, all these things that like the most liberal and progressive among us have said like, this doesn't actually lead to kids being better, da, 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 da. We're just doing harm. We didn't do jack. We didn't do jack. COVID came in and shut it all down. The other thing we talked about, we talked about, kids need devices, right? This is the new frontier. Kids need devices and internet, right? That's the new, that should be a, whatever, a, a right. Kids should have access. All these schools that couldn't get devices home, couldn't be bothered to invest in them, because what if these kids break it? All, COVID came in, all kids had devices. Kids had internet. On the res, super rural, isolated communities where kids didn't have access to high-speed internet, like I'll give you an example, Rosebud Reservation, where Josie talks about teaching. There is a task force there of educators from um, Todd County and White River and St. Frank, all these, they were going bananas to put internet on buses and vans and, 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 and um, station wagons to get internet to kids. They did, they moved hell, you know, the, the, the heaven and earth to get kids access Right, things that we we thought were not possible, but what I think it was is, while everybody was worried, these educators were free, and then they started asking, "What would we do? We won't get in trouble because nobody's checking." And they made it happen. And what's the first thing that happened? Not not on Rosebud, but in certain communities, because that that's just an extreme example. Because uh, super, you know, rural and isolation, they had to go and do things that probably didn't have to happen in urban areas, right? Because we didn't have to worry about that, right? They had, they were wired already. But like you hear all these communities that are collecting devices back after, you know, at the beginning of the fall, because we're not going back to virtual. What? We just did in two years, in less than that, honestly, probably like the first six to eight months or, or 12 months. We did in 12 months what we dreamed about for like a decade, and you're going to send it back? Well, so they can go get an old, um, old, hand-me-down textbook that was produced in texas so we don't learn about real stuff because you know we can't say this in texas or you know whatever in florida now we can't say gay so we won't have you know all this stuff that won't be in a, in a textbook because who gets to choose who gets to make the choices and you just you know got everybody free with wi-fi and a device and now you want to take it back that's the I mean, more than anything those are the things we have to undo and leave behind right like if when um when when a, a an actual natural disaster comes through and busts stuff up, for the most part we don't go. Well, that building just went down in a heap. Let's rebuild it exactly the way it was. No, we go. That didn't work, right? And that's why you see homes in these places on ele elevated or on like you know platforms and things because we learn differently. Oh, the, if if we get a flood again. We can't be on the, you know, we start to do things differently. You're going to have kids sit there and write you a boring essay or something when they, you could do a, like a live chat on Instagram or have them do some TikTok videos, like, and like make this stuff so much more relevant and connected and, and more accessible to the youth. Now you really could democratize learning and education, but that's dangerous.
because then they can teach what they want to each other. Now they can say what they want to say and who's in charge, right? That stuff. Uh, but the biggest thing, it starts with us as individual adults. Like, do we actually want something different? Because if we do, we have to let go of the privilege of adulthood and the privilege of, well, I went through the system, so you got to go. No, what do we really want? You know, and if we say we're about something progressive and different and beautiful, and by progressive, it's really just a returning back to the beginning, right? To the essence, right? If we want to reclaim indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous worldviews on education and how you grow and raise a child, then we have to get serious about like relinquishing some of that, the stuff that makes us comfortable. That is so true. And you look at, uh, it's always been the case. Youth have always scared adults, right? Because they see what's possible and they always ask why, why not? It's always been the purpose of education in many ways, especially mass education has been to kind of neuter that. Um, so Josie, what about you? Like what, what makes the work hard? What should we leave behind or what should we keep? Whichever direction you want to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so provocative, but I mean, I'm just sitting with that question of like, what are you willing to give up so that like kids can lead or can we can learn from kids? And I think that's to Jonathan's point, there's some comfort that we are not willing to give up. There's, there's just ways of, of typically doing things that we would have to confront some of our fears and actually let go of. And that's hard. And what we're seeing that right now, like we saw folks as he really beautifully like illustrated, we saw community come together. We saw relationships be prioritized for a common cause of kids need something right now, let's do it. And, and it happened. And then we're slowly gonna start to see a resorting back to what we know doesn't work and rebuilding what has been built before. That's my assumption um, at, at a whole. And I think we're also going to see pockets of something else happening, which I think in South Dakota, we're definitely seeing um, new, new schools, new, new educational environments. And, and I think what gets so hard, what that fear ends up looking like, that's just very prevalent to me right now, is this commitment to like polite injustice this like commitment to measurements and having results um because people want results people want to see what the impact is of what it is that's happening therefore we have different types of data sets that are so quantitative um and I think that's just so countercultural to what indigenous ways of being actually is and neo-indigenous. And I'm thinking now of like a quick story of in, in Rosebud, we're just, Rosebud's the place to be, home of the Sichangu. Um, and in last year, young John Boneshirt, who was a student at a school that I taught at, um, he, he went back to his ancestors in the stars. He, he lost his life to this system via suicide. But when I think about the grieving that happened and like going to his funeral and seeing the young people, they were, they were just sitting together. They were laughing. They were thinking about all the stories of John. Ooh, I get a little emotional here. And they were bumping Tupac, Tupac Shakur. Um, and I think 
oh my gosh, what's happening in front of us is ceremony. And you can't measure that. There is no measurement in the world that is going to capture what it is that already is here. And then to think about what type of growth is necessary when I I just don't believe that when we look at third grade standards or certain completion rates, that that is going to guarantee a quality of life for kids. And so I think so often about like, what is it that, that we are defining as results? Um, and, and how can we break away from typical types of measuring and, and actually be able to like honor what is already here and think about the responsibility of, of our elders? It is their sole responsibility to look to the future. When we think about Lakota language, um, there's, there's the... When you, when you use a future pretense, it's kte. If you were to use that in language, you would say kte. And it doesn't mean an actual future. It means like a hypothetical future. It means I'll be there tomorrow if I'm there is how you would use it, which again is an immediate call to right now. And I think through COVID, there was a right now. What is needed right now? And let's go do it. And we get caught in this, like, let's set the measure and then start working towards it in a, a very linear fashion. And when I think about fundraising and I, and I understand, like, the, the pull to want to make sure that what we're doing is working. Um, but I just think it leads to a lot of impositions. I could talk to you both all day. I think I'm going to have to come to South Dakota so that I can talk to you all day. Yes. <laughs> Break bread and just be together. I am just feeling compelled to end. We, we end prayers here, Jonathan knows, with Madakuye Oyasi. And so just wanted to enter those words into the space, which rough translation is that we're all related. Um, and it's how you would end. End a prayer, but I think also end a space. That was like prayer. So thanks, y'all. This is beautiful. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.